Let the uh, children be dismissed to their junior church service at this time. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians and chapter 3. us to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 3 this morning. The Word of God says this. It says, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted seed, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes it grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. The word of the Lord. This morning, I want to address the topic of two kinds of people, two kinds of Christians. Two kinds of people, two kinds of Christians. And ultimately, I want to come to ask the question, what kind of Christian are you? What kind of Christian am I? If you look back into chapter 2, verse 14, you will find that there is the description of a man without the Spirit. Some translations say the natural man or the man without the Spirit and then verse 15 says, the spiritual man. So it's clear in the preceding context that there are, in the sphere of Paul's discussion, two kinds of people in his world. Some that have the Spirit, some that do not have the Spirit. If you follow that and trace that out in Scripture in the New Testament, what you will come to understand is this. There are people that know Christ, and there are people that do not know Christ. There are people who have been born from above by the Spirit, and there are people who have not been born from above by the Spirit. Two kinds of people. Christian, non-Christian. Wheat and tares. The Bible is very clear on that as you go through it. But within the context of the Christian community, the Word of God says that, again, there are two kinds of people. There are Christians who are mature, and there are Christians who are immature. There are Christians who are not growing. And there are Christians who are growing. There are Christians who have the Spirit. And there are Christians who are being filled with the Spirit. And the difference ultimately falls out into words mature and immature. This is true in family life. When a little one comes into a home, an infant is born. An infant by definition, by its nature, is immature. It needs a lot of help, a lot of encouragement. It needs a lot of feeding of specific things. In this context, obviously, of a baby, they need milk. They don't need meat. They don't need cereal. They need and crave milk. Why? 
Because in their developmental immaturity, their needs are very basic. But as they grow and as the family comes together to help that little one grow and take care of them, you assume that over time, that little one will begin to assume the basic functions or responsibility for the basic functions of life, for eating, it's, for eating uh, by itself, for using the restroom, for going to bed, various things that you begin to assume will become part of the maturing process. They become more and more independent and more and more, at the same time, responsible for the health of the family as a whole. As Paul addresses the church in Corinth in verses 1 through 4, you can sense that Paul is dealing with or wrestling with a frustration in relationship to this church. They got off to a great start, heard the word of God, received it, were born from above, and the Spirit of God began to do wonderful and marvelous things in their life. But Paul in verse 1 says this, he says, I could not address you as spiritual. And I I think, and look at the beginning of verse 2, I gave you milk, okay? Brothers, context is believers in their early spiritual life, what could he give them? He had to give them milk, that's what they needed, that was part of the maturation process for a new believer, the milk of the word. He says, I gave you, verse 2, milk and not solid food, for you were not ready for it, meaning in the past. Indeed, even now, you're still not ready. And here's the, I think, the implication that Paul is bringing. When you first came to Christ, you needed basic teaching. And I brought that and gave that to you. Some years have passed, and there's the expectation that they would be moving on now spiritually to solid food. Okay, the clear expectation that the Apostle Paul has for the church in Corinth is that they would be working through a process of maturing and being ready for the greater things of God, the greater truths of God's Word, which would start to impact their effect on each other. You see, when a child is born into a house, they're the focus of attention. As they grow to become adults, they assume greater responsibility for others around them. That is the natural progression And that is the increase of maturity in an individual's life. In this church, Paul is expressing in their behalf, verse 3, a frustration. You are still worldly. Now, I want to address this word worldly. It comes up in verse 1. In verse 3, it comes up two times. In the New American Translation, which I believe a lot of you have, you're going to find the word, what's the word that's there? You are still fleshy, fleshly. Okay, what is it? You're, you're like mere men. You're like people without the Spirit. In other words, they had come to Christ. The beginning of verse 1 is clear. Brothers. Okay, speaking family term. But amongst that group of people, there were some who were still characterized by the word in the New International Version. They use the word world. It means like mere men, just people of the world who have not been born spiritually. Experienced a physical birth, yes, but not this spiritual birth that has brought about change. And Paul is deeply concerned about that. He's introducing a category of Christians, of which I believe there are two, those that are mature and those that are immature. The person who stays in immaturity while having the Spirit of God, some translations use the word, the old King James uses the word carnal. comes from the Greek word carne, which means flesh. Okay, you're still fleshy is what Paul is saying. You, You haven't allowed the Spirit of God to so overtake your life that your life is then transformed, that you are in this process of growing and become more and more of what God wants you to be. The symptom of this immaturity is found in verse 
3 and 4. Paul says, you're still worldly, fleshy, or immature, carnal, because in your midst there is jealousy and quarreling. Okay, two signs of immaturity that can persist in the life of adults. Okay, it is typical for children to bicker and fight. Why? When you're young, what do you lack? You lack love for others. You lack a spirit of self-control. Okay? As you grow, what, what happens? You begin to gain more and more of a sense of self-control and the ability to get along with others. So, when adult children are fighting, teenagers particularly, okay, what do mom and dad say to them? Why don't you grow up? Or we say something like this, why don't you act your age? Okay? It's understandable that three-year-olds would fight over toys. It is not truthfully understandable that 14-year-olds would be fighting over toys. Okay? And when they do, the heart of the parent is twisted, and what are they saying? Why don't you got, when are you going to, right? It gets insistent. When are you going to grow up? The assumption is that when you grow up, you're going to learn what it is to get along. You're going to stop acting like kids in nursery school who always need to be separated. Okay, Paul's frustration with this church is that there is a lack of maturity that is reflected in jealousy, which is an attitude of selfishness, and strife, which is the actions of selfishness, which is quarreling, bickering, fighting, always disagreeing, can't learn how to coordinate, how to negotiate, and get along. Paul sees that in this church. Some are saying, oh, I belong to Paul. Oh, I'm with Apollos. I'm with Peter. Okay, same thing. That can, remember, it came out in chapter 1. Paul's correction for it there was doctrinal. Here, the correction that he gives to the church is practical. If you grow in the Spirit and begin to value the things that God values in the context of community and church life, it will move you from jealousy and strife to unity. And when unity is present, the church becomes powerfully effective at doing its work for the glory of God. The danger in the church is that we often underestimate the power of a divisive spirit. It cannot be neatly contained. It is often underestimated in the body of Christ. The Apostle Paul won't abide that in the church in Corinth. They are his spiritual family. He feels a spiritual father's responsibility to come to them and to say, enough with the quarreling and strife. Get growing. And it's fascinating that when he addresses this issue, he doesn't talk about how to overcome strife and quarreling. He talks about how to grow with the assumption that when you grow, strife and quarreling will cease. Okay? So Paul's answer is, hey, stop arguing. It's not his answer. You would think that he would just say, hey, just knock it off. No, what he does is he leads them into a rational discussion of how they can mature, because when they mature, then the discussion of bickering and strife and jealousy will quiet down and fade away. These people had two problems. They were living in the power of the flesh. They were still fleshy. And they were yielding to the attraction of the world. Paul wants them to move to maturity in Christ. Because when that happens, strife will quiet down. Growth will emerge. And a love for others will become the dominant theme of the mature Christian's life. So, I want to narrow my discussion this morning down to this assertion. This assertion. We as the church must grow up in Christ. 
Okay, we can't be satisfied with where we are individually. We can't be satisfied with where we are corporately. We, as individuals, must take personal responsibility for our growth so that the body of Christ can have the effect that he has intended for her. And I will say this then. We will grow in maturity when we value certain things. And I'm just going to, out of this passage, try to create a bit of a list for you Going now from this diagnosis, verses 1 to 4, to the solution of the problem in verses 5 through 9. Okay? What are the values that the church needs to have so that it can be mature and healthy and effective in doing its God-given work? Verse 5 picks up this discussion. Paul says, what after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? And what, what I love is how Paul does this. He doesn't say, who is Paul and who is Apollos? In the original language, it is very, very clear. He uses this, a, a word that is neuter. What is Paul? What is Apollos? Okay, what is he doing? He's assigning to himself the idea of being an instrument, a tool, a paintbrush, a hammer that God is using. Okay? So the, the first attitude that emerges here, is the, and the, uh, the attitude that will, in a sense, help us to move towards maturity, is the attitude of humility. What is humility? In the notes, I have it this way. Each is totally and ultimately dependent upon God and others for progress, growth, and success. A humble person realizes, I am totally dependent upon God and others for growth and success. I can't do it alone. See, the Apostle Paul isn't encouraged by the fact that they would say, oh, I'm with Paul. Paul's embarrassed by that. Why? He knows who he is. What does he say? Just, I am an instrument that God is using and that God used to build this church. The question isn't, who are we? The question is, what are we? And how does Paul identify himself in verse 5? We are only servants. Only servants. The word is diakonos, which means a person who waits on tables. After dinner last night, I wanted to take my wife out for a walk. And so I said to one of my daughters, I didn't say, would you be a deacon here? But I said, do you guys mind cleaning up the tables? Mommy and I can go out for a walk. Okay, what was it? Just, it's the, the Paul saying, look, we're, we're just doing the menial task. We are instruments in the hand of God. What are we? My dear sisters and brothers in Christ, we are servants. We are instruments in the hand of God that he is using to do his work. That will be tremendously humbling. Look at verse 7 then, the second half of the verse. Paul, and Paul's going into an analogy that I'll come back to in a minute. He says, neither he who plants or he who waters is anything. They're nothing independently. But only God is something, is somebody who makes things grow. Okay, any growth that's taking place is not a result of individual effort. It's a result of God using his instruments to accomplish work for his glory. We are instruments. We are utterly dependent upon God. A hammer can't build a house, but a hammer in the hand of a skillful person can build a house. A saw in and of itself doesn't have any value, but that saw applied to wood, applied to the building of a house, can accomplish great things. When you go to an art museum, let me see if this illustration helps to illuminate this. When you go to an art museum, what do you go to see? Okay? You go to see art. If you went to an art museum and you saw paintbrushes and palettes displayed, okay, what would you think? I would say, I mean, in our day of memorabilia and value, you could say, well, Picasso touched this brush. 
Okay, so it has value from that perspective. But from the, from the perspective of the outcome, the brush was an instrument that was used in the hand of a master and it accomplished great things. What is Paul saying? We're the paintbrush. Don't make us the painting. Don't celebrate us. We're not the painter. God's the painter. The outcome, the work that is accomplished is God. Folks, that will always produce a degree of humility in our heart when we realize that anything good that's happening in our lives and around us, through us, is because only we are instruments in the hand of a mighty God. Effectiveness is not possible apart from God. That will promote a desire to pray, saying, God, use me. And when God uses you, it will humble you. The first value that, le first value that leads to effectiveness is humility. Children don't usually come out humble, right? They come out pushy and demanding, right? When that little one wakes up at 12 o'clock at night, that 11-month-old, that 10-month-old, and starts crying, what are they thinking? This is an expression of my just abject humility. I have to have mom come and help me. No, they're demanding. You come and you take care of me. Okay? As we grow, what happens? We start to think about the effect of our behavior on others. Paul is saying humility is essential to growing up, to becoming mature in Christ. Another thought that emerges in this text is found in verse 6. And just listen to how, how Paul talks about this. He says, each one is assigned to his test, his task by God. Paul says, I planted seed, Apollos watered it. And then I love this disclaimer at the end. I did, my, I did this, I did that, but God made it grow. Okay, now what is Paul saying? I had my part in seeing you come to faith in Christ and begin to grow. And Apollos had his part. And if you go back to chapter 1, Peter had his part. There were multiple people. So what is, the, what is the second value that will produce maturity in our life? The value is this. It is diversity. Understanding that God has given to people within the context of church life specific tasks. Diversity means this. It is the importance of appreciating each other. That we have different functions and roles and gifts and capacities within the context of church life, in the context of family life, in the context of community. A mature person knows that they can't do everything alone. That's a mature person. When you deal with children as you, uh, as you raise them, there is a very fascinating dy dynamic. There are some words that they start to come up with when you're trying to help them, you're trying to guide their hand to feed them. And they say something like, I do that. I do that. Okay? And, and what are they saying? Now, I want to start to take responsibility. As I'm growing, I need to assume more responsibility. Most children, however, start to express that prematurely, don't they? I do that. And the food is on their lap or on the floor, right? And what you do is you let them try something and then they mess up and then you come back and you say, like this. Okay, one of the signs of immaturity early on is a failure to realize that I need help and a desire to be independent prematurely apart from parental guidance. That's the way it works with children. How many of you have had the uh, privilege of trying to teach a teenager how to drive? Okay, this becomes exceedingly evident in this setting. Now, I don't know if it's gender-based. I don't know. Okay, I just have an experience with one gender. It is... With my oldest, Rebecca, since she's not here, I can say this. You should go driving with mommy. Okay? <laughs> not because I was putting her life at risk, but because Ruth had a better idea of how to 
give guidance to Ruth or to Rebecca. Uh, same thing is true in the spiritual life. We prematurely think that we don't need others. And can I say this truthfully? A mature person realizes that I can't do this alone. Just like in the physical body, there are parts that are interdependent. A mature Christian values the gifts and tasks that every believer is assigned by God within the body of Christ. And it's fascinating that when Paul uses this, this analogy, it's, it's an analogy of a farmer. The first four verses are speaking about family life, bringing someone to maturity, growing up, finally launching on their own. In this analogy, verses 6 through 9, it, it, it's, it's a farmer planting crops. A wise farmer understands that there are multiple people or multiple tasks that make a farmer effective, that produce an outcome, a harvest. Plowing the field makes you a cultivator. It doesn't make you a farmer. Sowing seed on hard soil makes you a sower of seed. It doesn't make you a farmer. In the context of irrigated planting, which would be very prevalent in this culture, in this context, uh, you could plant seed and you could plant it in cultivated soil, but if water was not applied, you weren't a farmer. What makes you a farmer is when you do the diversity of tasks that bring about an outcome. A mature individual understands, just like a farmer understands, there are many tasks that make this whole outcome effective. A mature Christian realizes that each brother and sister in Christ has a unique gift, and every one of those gifts is vital and important in the body of Christ. And they value that, and they encourage others. Immature people don't encourage each other. They're prone to strife and jealousy. I believe in this passage of Scripture, Paul is leaning towards something that's very powerful on a day like Mother's Day. There is a unique role that moms fulfill by God's design. Dads are not capable of fulfilling that role. I hate to disappoint you. And hence, there is this appreciation for God's design in diversity. Mom's bringing something unique to the table. Dad brings something unique to the table. That is Father's design. We live in a world that's trying to ignore that design. It is unnatural and unhelpful. By God's design, people are given unique roles to be effective in very specific and unique purposes. A mature person understands their limitations and seeks the help and value of others. Ask yourself this question this morning. Do I have a spirit of appreciation for my wife, for my husband, for my co-worker, for my brother and sister in the body of Christ? Do I have an appreciation for their input, their work, their effort? We need to be humble. We need to understand that there is an importance of appreciating each other. Number three, a mature, growing Christian will value unity and unity of purpose. It is the importance of a spirit of cooperation. Look at verse 8. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. They do not have one function, but they have one purpose. What's the purpose? Health and growth. That's the purpose. And everybody is pulling together to say, we have an objective. That's the way it works in the farming agricultural community. Everybody has their unique function and responsibility. The goal is a unified goal of purpose, and that is fruit. 
And so in verse 8, Paul goes after this theme of unity and unity of purpose and the value of a spirit of cooperation. The realization is this, that others are essential to effectiveness, that God-honoring progress and success is not achieved by individuals. It is achieved by teams. We live in a world that loves heroes. We live in a world that when you start to talk about team, places high value on franchise players. Some teams philosophically are built around a franchise player. The weakness of that model is this. When the franchise player breaks, the team breaks. It's an unhealthy model for life. It's an unhealthy model athletically. It is an exceedingly unhealthy model for the body of Christ. The church needs to understand and engage the value and importance of every part. And so Paul is just humbly illustrating. What is, he's trying to knock himself out of this position of people saying, I'm of Paul. Paul wants nothing to do with that. He says, I watered, or, or you know, I planted, Apollos watered, however, however you say it. I, we just did our part. And the outcome of the church in Corinth, brothers and sisters joined as a family with mature and immature people, is the work of God. And every person there, Paul wants them to realize that they are each important. There is a, an error in the church in Corinth, and it was overvaluing the service of certain individuals, and that was devaluing unity and promoting strife. Growth comes when we realize that God's work is best done by unified teams of people. That's the way that God's work is best done. And then there's a sobering thought that comes up at the end of verse 8. Let's read the verse again. The one who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, one unified goal. And each will be rewarded according to his own labor. Now think about that. Why does Paul say that? I believe what he's doing is raising the flag of accountability. Realize, brothers and sisters, one day each one of us will stand before God and give an account of our lives. What is Paul saying? Please don't overestimate my value. There is an evaluation, a day of accountability at the judgment seat, which I, there, I won't be able to bluff. The one who sees in the dark will see my life. And Paul's just saying, I sense this weight of responsibility. I want you as a church, Paul's saying, to sense this weight of responsibility. One day we'll give an account of ourselves before God. Each of us gives a personal reckoning to God. Each, each one is recorded or rewarded according to their faithfulness. And here's the encouraging part, folks. Can we say that it's likely that the church in Corinth was misunderstanding this because they thought that reward was based upon not faithfulness but fruitfulness? What does Paul say? Paul says each one is rewarded according to his or her own faithfulness. You know, it is easy to regard your life as unimportant and ineffective because you constantly compare yourself to others. You want to destroy your life? Compare yourself to others. You want to devalue your life? Compare, there is always someone out there who's more productive than you, who's more effective than you. Always. There's always someone who's better. I think I'm a pretty good ping pong player until I met some pastor friends up here who are better than me. It makes me feel bad about that skill. 
okay? What is Paul saying? You know, one day I'm going to stand before God and I will be judged based on how faithful I was. So too will every one of us. Folks, when you remember there's a day of accountability, when God will evaluate your life, it should change how you live. There were two words in the sphere of my workplace as a teenager growing up in the adolescent years when fun seemed to be more relevant than work. I worked for my dad. There were two words that when whispers through the store were life-changing. Dad's coming. We had so much fun with customers. At their expense often. But when I heard those words, guess what? All the shenanigans, just everything stopped. Why? Accountability, responsibility. Every Christian, every one of us one day is going to stand before God. Knowledge of the coming judgment, of the coming evaluation, should motivate us to be everything that God intends for us to be. Don't let the inadequate effort of others to kill your service. Take responsibility for what God has called you to do. Be faithful to Him. One day you will stand before Him and you will give an account for your life, not for the life of those around you. And the last thought that just emerges out of verse 9, it, and, it, and it's, it's a fascinating statement. Each will be rewarded for his own labor, for we are, and I just love this statement, we are God's fellow workers. What is, what is Paul saying? You want to drop to your knees? You want to fall in humility? Realize that it's not about you. It's not what you're doing. What it, Paul's like, don't, don't, don't get caught up in thinking it's about us. We are God's co-laborers. We have the privilege of cooperating and depending upon God. And the last value that I want to give you this morning is this. The value of dependence. The importance of daily linking with God long term. Because the things that need to be done cannot be done by us alone. Paul said, we're God's fellow workers. And then this, you are God's field. You are God's building. This Paul said, we are cooperating with God in working in His field. It's, when I was a kid, when my dad came, what changed me was, it's His store. He wants it run in certain ways. He owns it. Mom, can I give you this encouragement this morning? As you fulfill your God-given task in your family... They're God's kids. And that will do two things. It will raise the bar of accountability. You'll say, okay, I need, these are God's kids. They're God's kids. And how important it is that you link with God and pouring your life into their life. You are so valuable. You are more valuable when you link with God. Okay? They're God's kids. Don't forget that. And also realize that the most effective service you can give them is in service that is linked with Him daily. Your unique God-given role is valuable and precious in the life of your kids. And fellow Christian, your unique God-given role in the context of church life is valuable and precious. The church is God's. It's God's. And we will only be effective in it when we link with Him and work and seek to live for His glory. And I believe that the key to that linking with God is found in Galatians chapter 5. Walk in the Spirit. And you will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. Walk in the Spirit. Link up with God. Grab His hand. And walk with Him. 
Paul says, if by the Spirit we put to the, put the death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. You know what he's talking about? Victorious living that overcomes carnality, fleshliness, and worldliness. And when we link with him and with each other, strife and discord and jealousy will begin to fade. And effectiveness for the glory of God will begin to rise. Are you growing? Are you linking with God? Are you linking with God? This morning you may be here and you may say, Pastor Tim, I want to be effective for God, but I don't know that I know Him. I don't know that I know Him personally. I want to tell you something very plain and straightforward this morning. You cannot come to God without linking with Him by faith and trust. By responding to the call of His Spirit upon your heart this morning. By sensing, knowing that there is a convicting work of the Spirit of God in my heart that is drawing me to place saving faith in the shed blood of Jesus Christ at the cross. It brings me back to verse 5. We are only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord gave opportunity. I wonder this morning, do you know him? Or are you part of his family? Is the pervasive fleshiness in your life a symptom of being unconverted rather than a symptom of being disconnected from God? That's the question that you need to ask when you get through this text. There are two kinds of people. People that have trusted Christ and people that haven't. There are two kinds of Christians. Those that are filled with the Spirit and those that are not. The person that lives in their flesh has a difficult thing to wrestle with. Am I genuinely converted? If carnality, if fleshliness, if worldliness is pervasive and the dominant theme of my life, then I have to ask a question. Have I been converted, changed? And if you haven't been, this morning, I just, I just want to invite you. When we sit down to contemplate close our eyes to contemplate receiving the Lord's table today. If you've never trusted Christ, I wish to encourage you to come forward, to sit with me up front here and say, Pastor Tim, I've never trusted Christ. Dad, the greatest gift that you can give to your wife and family today is being born from above. And it's a gift that only you can receive from God. Anyone here this morning, if you've never trusted Christ, I would beg of you to come. May God help us to grow as Christians for His glory. Let's bow our heads together this morning. Father, we thank You for Your Word.